0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Amplify Conversations. I'm your host, Sam Ashu, and it is June 2022, which means summer is in full swing. At EB Medicine, we are celebrating our 23rd year, and at ebmedicine.net, you can receive a 25% discount by using the code BDAY22, which you can find on the website by clicking on the banner celebrating our birthday. Today is the 100th day of the war in Ukraine. We are going to be speaking to Dr. JP McBride about his experience volunteering in the country, and hopefully in the near future, bringing you more information about others who volunteered in country and how you can contribute your expertise
1: to help the people of Ukraine.
0: And now it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. JP McBride.
1: My name is JP McBride. I am emergency medicine doc, 29 years now. I have kind of been all over the world working clinically. I did a year and a half in New Zealand, and then I was on faculty at Carolinas Medical Center, which is now called Atrium in Charlotte for about 14 years. And then I went in 2015 to Abu Dhabi, the United Arab Emirates, where Cleveland Clinic had opened up a big hospital in partnership with one of their sovereign wealth funds, and I was on faculty there as an EM consultant and had a marvelous six years in Abu Dhabi and traveled throughout the area. And then when I, I just returned in October of 2021 and I had been involved with med global more from, you know, exchanging ideas you know, they had done a lot of work with the Rohingya refugee crisis and I did not go over there, but I had two of my friends from Abu Dhabi who ended up volunteering there and just did a, a wonderful job and had a wonderful experience. So I had been in touch with them. And I got involved with Ukraine because I had emailed them. And and right now in my career, I've got some free time and and bandwidth to, to do something like that at the last minute. And it came together within about four days and we ended up in Lviv and it was great. It was pretty easy to get there. We flew through, uh, Warsaw and had a a van pick us up and take us across the border, which was an interesting experience because you can imagine the border is a mess, but Lviv was, uh, it was just a marvelous European city, cobblestone streets, incredibly clean. It didn't feel really like they were at war. They had a curfew and there were a lot of, obviously a lot of military around, but the shops were open, the cafes were open and it was kind of a, a strange experience knowing that the Far East was, of Ukraine was just getting shredded.
0: Well, first, thanks for doing this podcast and telling us about your
1: experience.
0: Now, you went over what you said with Med Global, and you were based in Lviv. And what was the primary thing you were doing there while you were in Lviv?
1: So there was a team of four docs and two amazing interpreters, and then one Ukrainian uh, Med Global employee. And then we had these two Ukrainian medical students that, that found us and were invaluable as well. I was with one other EM doc who had just finished her residency program, and we were in charge of POCUS and trauma management, mainly ultrasound teaching. So we would teach and give lectures at hospitals in and around Lviv, and then we would also do Zoom sessions with uh, physician teams in the Far East. They were getting a lot of the blown up casualties. And MedGlobal, this was their third deployment, and they were able to get some of the equipment that was needed in the East to the actual physicians, including the butterfly IQ probes that would plug into your smartphone. So we were basically teaching and lecturing. We were not doing any direct uh, clinical care. And the people you're you're
0: teaching are familiar with emergency medicine? Are they trained in emergency medicine? Are they primary care or medics, or what kind of well, people are you teaching?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say they were EM as we know it. They were more critical care, surgery, ICU. And it seemed that most of the facilities that we visited in person, which was probably about, I don't know, six or seven hospitals in and around the Lviv area, their, their ability to perform ultrasound in the uh, acute care arena was limited to one person who had the ultrasound machine and who knows how quickly they could come and do it. It was not a skill that was taught or available to, the folks that were on the front lines, other than the one person. And it sounds like it was probably a radiologist. So they were probably where we were, you know, when, when did ultrasound really start happening for us? 20, 25 years ago? Yeah, easily. Something like that. So the FAST exams, they knew about them, but it does it didn't seem like they were performing them because the ultrasound singular person was in charge of everything. So our idea in MedGlobal, I think had done a pretty good job. Our idea was to get them the probes, download the programs and train them into what they're seeing and how to use it and everything. So. We had uh, iPads, but I used my smartphone because I wanted them to see the actual benefits. Even on the smartphone, the images were pretty amazing. And as you know, Sam, if you've used it, you know, it's, it's basically you swipe horizontal for the gain and, and vertical for the depth, and that's it. There is no buttonology. There's no learning curve of a machine. It, it was really sweet. And I think they really uh, value the simplicity of that.
0: And you spent how long in Lviv or in the area?
1: So I flew out Sunday through Munich and then on to Warsaw and got to Warsaw Monday and then took a long van ride and crossed the border and got into Lviv late Monday night. And immediately we had everything set up. Christina, the Ukrainian that was just brilliant, she had somehow managed to coordinate all of our hospital visits, all of our lectures, coordinate the teams of doctors and nurses that we were training and hit the ground running Tuesday morning. So we'd have a morning session, afternoon session, and usually we'd be done by 6 PM.
0: And then you said you did some online video conference type teaching with people who were further east in the country. Those were also, these are physicians on the front lines, treating patients. You're, you're doing more ultrasound education with them.
1: Absolutely. So one doc who was just such a wonderful, you could just tell he was a wonderful doc. He had been at the hospital seven straight days and not even been home. This was outside. Odessa, I think west of Odessa. So they were, they were taking a lot of the acute casualties doing the salvage surgeries and then shipping them further west to get them out of the area. I, I was really impressed by how their, the healthcare infrastructure had done. They had really survived and somehow the Ministry of Health had done a great job evacuating those that survived further west to keep the flow going. But this doctor in particular, he had one of these probes that you can plug into your smartphone. And we went through, you know, I don't know, probably about two hour session on eFAST and answered all his questions. We had interpreters that were just brilliant. I mean, I don't know how they translated so perfectly, but talked him through all the FAST. There's probably about six or eight. It looked like more ICU docs. And again, I'm not sure, you know, if they actually had EM docs present. It was, it sounded like they were probably more surgeons or critical care docs, manning the the acute traumas and poly system issues. So this guy was so thankful and so eager and clearly he had done some work on his own because he kind of knew where the free fluid was. He had some questions on how to not be fooled and how to get better images. And then the pneumothorax scans we spent a lot of time on which was really beneficial i think for him
0: and he was able to then take that and just translate it directly to patient care immediately did you have more contact with him at all
1: yeah so he was so he had one of these probes and i think he he's one of those go-getter docs that would he probably went and scanned everybody in the ICU. We did review some cardiac stuff as well. So it wasn't just EFAS trauma and uh, he had called MedGlobal. That was on the first day, Tuesday, we we had a long session with him and he called up Med Global, asked to speak to us again on Thursday. We get back online to review more cardiac with him. And he had told us a story of a kid that was on a ventilator. I assume it was one of the soldiers that had poly system trauma. The x-ray, the portable x-ray did not show pneumothorax and his parameters were all off. And he puts the probe on there and we showed him how to compare each side, how to use different interspaces. And he realized the kid had a pneumothorax. So he puts a chest tube in and his parameters improved and he told us the story and we were like, that is wild. Wow. So it was real time effective difference making. And I I think once he probably did that, I imagine he went through every patient in the, uh, in the ICU and did fasts and. Lung exams on everybody. And as you know, when you do enough of them, you get pretty good, especially when you're seeing abnormalities and you can compare them. So I think it was a really effective training for him. Um, and even our surgical colleagues did a lot of disaster management. So they presented scenarios to these hospitals in and around Lviv. Okay. You've got 50 people blown up. Do you have your black, red, green, uh, yellow tags? Do you understand? Your triage person in that setting has to be your best. And they did these big, huge actual patient, you know, actors that, that were representing the, the, the injured. So it was, I think it was pretty, pretty darn effective. And then of course, the question is going forward, depending on how long this evilness lasts, how do you continue to be effective with what you're trying to accomplish? That's what they're wrestling with now, I think.
0: Yeah, this sounds almost like a, uh, an ATLS education with ultrasound incorporated that you were over there doing like a mass casualty kind of education course.
1: Yep. I, I, that's absolutely true. I think it was that and their infrastructure, like we went into those hospitals and it was probably, I mean, they didn't have the equipment, their main kind of triage bay was pretty sparse. So if you could teach mass acute disaster and poly system trauma to everybody there, that would be the most effect. Putting an ATLS course in there would be difficult, but piecemealing it like this, I think was probably the right play. Did you get a sense for what their healthcare
0: system is like over there? I mean, how comparable is it to say what we have in the U.S. or even in some of the European countries?
1: Yeah, my sense was, and I asked the two medical students who were both Ukrainian and they had been through COVID, they had not been in school. Everything had been online, like most of the world. So they were so thankful to get out and get real life experience in these hospitals and see what we're doing. My sense was it is probably not up to Western or North American standards in the sense that they don't have the equipment, they don't have the technology. They do have, I felt, phenomenal physicians. I felt they were really, really amazing. And they were able to do all sorts of, you know, complicated stuff. And we saw a lot of folks with X fix all over the place. We saw amputated limbs and soldiers that had survived. So clearly they were able to do what needed to be done, but they didn't have the deep resources that, that we would be used to.
0: And then on your team, you mentioned translators. So these are medical translators or was there a struggle in the the medical lingo as you were trying to teach? How did that work?
1: Yeah, Sam, it was wild. No, there was not a struggle. They were not medically trained. They were both probably 45, 50-year-old women who just, I mean, their English was impeccable, better than mine. It was really amazing. And Even like when we talk about stratosphere sign, I'd, I'd hesitate and somehow they explain that as you're watching the video. So in Lviv itself, like a lot of the cafes, they wouldn't necessarily speak English. There would be some, you know, basic communication that could happen. But fortunately my fellow ER doc, Tanya, her parents were from Ukraine and she was uh, very fluent and got us around well. So. It wasn't as much of a struggle in the lecturing and teaching as I thought it was going to be. Even in our Hispanic population, sometimes just in in the actual room with the interpreter and the patient, it, it seems to disconnect. But I, I was incredibly impressed with our interpreters.
0: And then your personal safety was okay in that region where you were?
1: Yes. So Lviv is about oh, an hour from the border with Poland now. They had taken some hits, but I didn't see any damage. And then Tuesday night, our second night there, apparently Russia had lobbed some missiles at an electrical grid on the outside of Lviv. I didn't hear anything, but we had sirens go off almost every single day, and And they had uh, bomb shelters almost in every facility. I don't know if that was left over from 1944, 45, or, or it was not new by any means. I, I went down there just to look at it. I didn't actually go down there when these sirens went off because they were going off fairly frequently. But I felt very safe. I think I mentioned to you, this, Lviv itself, the, the, the city was fairly normal in, in many respects. And I think that was a, a surreal kind of experience for the citizens there because they knew everybody in the Far East were, were getting clobbered. I've never met a a more proud, determined, focused, and pissed off people. And they may, I I don't know Ukrainian history or or Eastern European history that well, but I don't know if they've they've ever been as united as they are now. And I think, you know, I'm not a, a politician, but I can't imagine a bigger mistake being made than what Putin has done. He has really unified that country. And... I told uh, a lot of folks back here in North Carolina that if he thinks he's going to win, he's going to have to murder 45 million people, mm-hmm. which is the entire country. We met this young kid who had opened up this IDP, Internally Displaced People Center, and I, he takes me in the back, just a really energetic kid. He was in his early 20s, and he takes me upstairs, and these elderly women, Ukrainian women, are on these wooden stools in front of this big frame making camo netting that they're shipping east and they've shredded up all these t-shirts tie dyed them to all these different shades of green and brown and they were teaching like strangely a lot of the far east uh, refugees that got out and got to the west some of them didn't speak ukrainian they only spoke russian and so now there were uh embarrassed, I guess you could say, because they didn't have Ukrainian language, even though they were Ukrainian citizens. So they were then trying to teach them a crash course of Ukrainian as they were displaced in their own country and and not speaking the native language of their own country, that was really strange. And I don't know, I, I just got the sense that they were so thankful for the world support, I think they were probably a little surprised, the two medical students they were asking me why isn't United States or, you know, Western Europe doing even more mm-hmm. and I gave them the big picture of nuclear war risk. And I mean, it's a fine line that, that Western Europe and, and North America is walking and you can't send boots on the ground to, to shoot at soldiers. Cause then what's the next step? So it was uh, and I think they got that. I think they understood, but man, what a mess, what, what an absolute tragedy and mess well
0: as listeners to this podcast start to think about ways that they can help so with this company you went physically over there to teach but while you were in country you were also teaching virtually is that something that they're going to expand could virtual teaching occur even from the u.s without having to travel all the way over there and and dedicate that time for travel
1: right i mean i think that's the question i i I would say med global and i I mean i have no affiliation or, or you know, conflict of interest with them. They're a wonderful organization. I think they're looking at that. And I'm sure these other humanitarian organizations are also looking at it. Do you need to be personally in country to do the virtual teaching? Maybe not. Or do you need to be closer to where the tragedy is unfolding further east, which of course increases your security risk. I think there are certainly abilities with the internet and uh, global connections to do teaching, lecturing, online, And even 12 time zones or whatever we are, or nine time zones. There is something, as you know, Sam, about being in front of somebody. And these docs, when I had my phone out, I, I I was able to take their hand and show them exactly the, you know, a paternal view and push their hand down or, or whatever. So there's, there's obviously benefit to that, but depending on how long this goes on, I think that's what a lot of the big organizations are probably looking at. You know, can we make a difference? without being in country Mm. and going through those logistics
0: and when you were doing the video conferencing portion of it not the live in-person training the the connections were stable pretty good or what are they relying on over there
1: that that's a great question i don't know we had no problems we had no interference our wi-fi in this little uh the quaint little hotel we stayed at in downtown La Vie was great, phenomenal. And the connection on their end outside Odessa was also amazing. They did a great job with it and there wasn't a problem. Absolutely Good. zero problem. Good. Are you going back? They were talking about going back again in June. I would go back in a heartbeat if they needed me to. I, again, during our debrief, I think the, the critical question is, can you be effective or not? Just going there to go there is not going to be helpful. So I think they're assessing that right now in in the leadership structure in MedGlobal and probably a lot of the other aid organizations. How can people help? You mentioned something about that. I don't think you have to go there and I don't even think you have to give a lot of money. Certainly you can donate to these wonderful organizations and there are a bunch of them out there that are effectively using their dollars. Some I'm sure are not, but the bigger picture to me, Sam, is you just if you give a damn and you read about it and you you care about it and you do whatever you can you send them your thoughts your prayers your karma whatever it is you you put out there and you know this is to me a, a kind of a a microcosm of good versus evil and ukrainians are the good and and putin is evil and what he has unleashed is beyond horrible and i think if you care that is part of the big cosmic flow of good versus bad. So if you have the money to to give, yeah, I think MedGlobal, I think it's rated pretty high. You definitely should research it and figure out what, what you want your money to go to. I think in a, when a, in a country like Ukraine that doesn't have everything, how effective and creative and resourceful they are with their limited resources is something that's really, it's just beyond cool. And here we are in the United States with everything. And we, all we do is bicker and, and, and moan about each other. And yet they've got so much less and they're so united. It was really refreshing and uplifting to feel that unity in a country like that.
0: That's wonderful. One last question. So you were the, you were an, obviously an emergency medicine physician on the trip. There were other specialists with you that you mentioned there was some people trained in trauma surgery as well, who, who went with you?
1: Yeah. So there was uh, four of our docs on the team. Two surgeons and two ER. I was the oldest by far. I'm 58. My other ER doc, she had just finished her residency program, I think a year ago. The trauma surgeon was probably in his late thirties, great guy. And then the other surgeon was in her, I think final year of residency in surgery. And they did a lot more of the patient flow, disaster management, triage stuff while we focused more on the POCUS and the actual ultrasound training.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. So MedGlobal, maybe some future opportunities there for our listeners. As you mentioned, there are several aid organizations. So if there's not an opportunity with MedGlobal, there may be with others. And I encourage you to go take a look. We'll put a link to MedGlobal in the show notes for today. JP, thanks for joining us and sharing your experience. I really appreciate it.
1: Sam, that's great. Appreciate you.
0: Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Amplify Conversations with Dr. McBride. I hope to be bringing you more information about other ways that people have been contributing in Ukraine. And in the meantime, ebmedicine.net for all of your foam ed needs, your continuing medical education, your emergency medicine and urgent care education needs. And don't forget our 23rd birthday and 25% off your subscriptions all this month, medicine.net Until next time, I'm Sam Ashu. Be safe, everyone.